Hey everyone, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. Are you ready to go long? Today, we want to introduce you to the fascinating world of ultra-distance cycling. While there isn't a true definition of what ultra means, and some of our guests like to say it is a state of mind more than anything else, for the sake of this discussion, we're talking about multi-day bikepacking events, randonneuring events which range from 200 kilometers up to 1,200 kilometers, as in the case of the granddaddy of them all, Paris, Brest, Paris, and ultra-cycling races like RAM, the 12- and 24-hour time trial world championships, cross-state records, and the list goes on. What are these events? How do you prepare physically and psychologically for these endurance feats? What's it like to ride when sleep-deprived? What should you eat out there on the lonely road? That and so much more on today's show. Our featured guest is Matt Roy, someone who has been competing at ultra events of all kinds for over a decade. Some of his accomplishments. Matt holds both the main north to south and west to east cross-state records. He holds the Saratoga 12-hour course record. He won the Transatlantic Way Pairs Division in 2018. This is a bikepacking race around the western coast of Ireland. He finished the Paris-Brest-Paris in 2019 and has completed more than 27,000 kilometers of brevets since 2007. His list of accomplishments goes on. I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that he also holds his PhD in immunology from Harvard and now works in CRISPR and gene editing technology. A conversation will leave for another episode. Joining Matt on the show today is his friend and colleague Nick Legan, road brand manager for Shimano, who is also an accomplished ultra-distance cyclist, having completed Tour Divide and the 12-hour time trial world championships on more than one occasion. He's also a tech and gear guru, having formerly served as a tech editor of Bell News Magazine, and he's also been a professional mechanic for world tour teams. We also hear from Jose Bermudez, another accomplished ultra-distance cyclist. As he likes to say, his modest claim to fame is that he's the first and still the only person to have completed RAM, the Tour Divide, and Trans Am, which is a self-supported bikepacking race across the U.S. He's also raced the 350 and 1,000-mile Iditarod events up in Alaska in winter, so he's a little bit off his rocker. Not only does he race, he also coaches. Jose is a USA Cycling Level 2 coach. Irrelevant, though still interesting, is the fact that he is a professor of philosophy at Texas A&M University. I'll ask it again. Are you ready to go long? Let's make you fast. Well, this is one of those episodes that maybe is a little bit out of our typical theme of science and physiology. It's more of an introduction to a a new world that we don't touch upon here too much, bikepacking, ultracycling, randonneuring. And we've got a great guest today. His name's Matt Roy. He's got a lot of experience in all of these different disciplines. Uh, you may know him as... Can I introduce you as Mo Bruno Roy's mechanic of choice, Matt? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. Tell us, Matt. Welcome to welcome to Fast Talk, first of all, and tell us a little bit more about your background in in this ultra distance, ultra endurance cycling world. Yeah, of course, and thanks thanks so much for having me on the show, guys. It's uh, it's a real pleasure. Um, 
So, so I, I was sort of an accidental entrant to, to the ultra cycling world. Um, and I was a, I would say a mediocre, uh, cat three slash collegiate racer for a number of years. Um, you know, I'd worked as a, uh, pro mechanic for the Saturn cycling team and had acquired lots of nice equipment and appreciation for the chess game that is cycling and, uh, started racing myself and, uh, during my grad school days, I, I crashed in a, in a crit um, and broke my hip, uh, broke the ball off my femur. And it was a fairly complicated fracture uh, and required um, repair with something called a dynamic hip screw. And the prognosis they gave me wasn't super rosy. They said, uh, um, likely no bikes, period, uh, cane for the rest of your life probable hip replacement within three to five years, expect a vascular necrosis. Uh, and um, that's, that wasn't really going to fly uh, with me. And pretty early on, I was, I was sitting at home. Uh, I had a walker. I was on a walker for five weeks and then uh, crutches for non-weight bearing for another three and a half months. And, and um, not one to really feel sorry for myself. I was sitting at home and um, just, I saw some, uh, um, interview about a RAM event. And I had heard about RAM and was, you know, curious about that kind of insanity that it would take to race your bike from Oceanside to back to, I think it's Delaware across the country. Um, and I, I started looking into what ultra cycling was, you know, recognizing that my favorite thing about racing was riding my bike. And the races that I always did the best in were the ones that were the longest and uh, started to make this this connection. Um, in that in that world of and looking into ultra cycling, I discovered that the governing body for ultra in the U.S., the UMCA, was also the keeper of cross state records, um, Maine west to east, north to south, all of these records. And I thought that one way to rehab myself would be to set my sights on something kind of audacious and decided probably within a month of breaking my hip that I was gonna set the main north to south ultra cycling record. And, and that's the beginning of it pick, all. You I didn't had, pick the shortest state. You picked something a little bit more challenging and remote because you're mad, well, I, because, because I, why? I, there's a few reasons. One is um, I, wanted, uh, I wanted to be New England. Uh, and I had, I had some issues with the, um, the decided endpoints for Massachusetts. The decided endpoints for Massachusetts were North Adams to Boston. And mm, really, a, any, any self-respecting mass hole knows you have to go to P-Town <laughs> to get to the end of the state. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, and, you know, that adds another 135 miles. So, you know, I looked at all of the states where records had been established and none of the endpoints I felt were either challenging or satisfactory. Um, so then I looked at Maine, largest state in New England, and I looked on the northernmost part of the map and the southernmost part of the map, and I drew a straight line and said, I can establish the record for Maine north to south, and no one will be able to question the uh, northness or the southernness of the endpoints. And I knew that it would be beautiful. I knew that it would be um, a challenge. And really within a few months of this injury, I just set my sights on this. Um, I effectively 
dropped out of grad school. I didn't really drop out. I just didn't do anything other than research <laughs> my dissertation um, and, and just set my sights on learning how to pedal a bike and, and get back to it. Um, so I had my sights set on ultra to set this event, but I learned the ropes of ultra through Brandon Yearing. Tell, tell people a little bit more about this because it's steeped in history. It's got French origins um, probably a little bit of a black box to a lot of people that aren't familiar with it. Tell tell us more about that. I think you've summed it up quite nicely, actually. It is steeped in a long French tradition. In fact, the, it started with this, this um, concept called Audac, which is, uh, I think, audacious. Um, and the first established event was in like the 1850s, and it was uh, in Italy. And a set of riders were going to try to ride from Rome to Venice or something. I don't, I don't know what the exact route was. Um, and that was the first established ODAC. And, th- and that kind of merged into this idea of um, long distance events. And it's, it has a, a long history, but in the U.S., uh, we call them breves. Uh, and they're a series of non-competitive distance events. I, I loosely call them accelerated touring. I think it's a, a great way that you can um, see a lot of land and have someone designate a route for you. And these events are nicely organized in that they build upon each other. You start with a 200K, then you move to a 300, then a 400, then a 600, and they build up to a, a Grand Brevet, which is a, a 1200 kilometer event. And there's there's some rules on how this is done. There's uh, there, there are control points that you have to stop at. Usually every 100K or so, uh, you have a control card that you get signed at these checkpoints. You're only allowed to receive service at these checkpoints. So if you had a support vehicle, they could only meet you at these checkpoints. Um, you're certainly permitted to stop at a store anywhere along the route, but the, the emphasis is on self-sufficiency. And this sport um, has long roots in France and, and really ties back to the kind of the, the Tour de France equivalent of this, which is Paris, Brest, Paris. Uh, and, and many of you have probably heard about Paris, Brest, Paris, but this is the longest running cycling event in the world. It was first run in 1891, and it was actually done as a 750 mile race. Uh, and that was done all the way through the 1950s. Um, but around the 30s, they started having these amateur events where, where this concept of breve started coming in and became more of the exclusive home to PDP as this breve where you have a time limit. You can, uh, the clock starts as soon as you begin and you have a time limit to achieve the, the prescribed route, collecting the control checkpoints along the way and, and finishing within the time limit. To jump in here, you say that all of this is non-competitive. So at PBP nowadays, no one actually wins. It's all about getting your name in this big old book that I've heard about. Yes, that's that's definitely true. But you can't you can't swing a leg over a bike and not be somewhat competitive. Right, you know, at right. Least a, that's my, yeah. A, 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 at least a portion of this, and and I actually think this is kind of the beauty of breves and. Um, it's something I really enjoy about it is there's this sort of equanimity to it where we each are covering the course and we choose how we cover the course. I like to try to set course records every time I do them, but no one cares. They list the results alphabetically. And there, there are sort of some 
lesser known awards based on speed and time. Our, you know, our listeners are pretty competitive people. So if they want to dabble in this world, they might be more drawn to something that uh, feels like a race. Yeah. The two examples I'll give uh, are the Charlie Miller Society and the R60. So the Charlie Miller Society, Charlie Miller was the first American to ever race PBP. And he completed it on a single speed, uh, 750 miles in 190 something uh, in 55 hours and 40 minutes. And anyone, any American, and the first to do so was in like 1979, I, I could be off on that date. The first American to do so since Charlie Miller and finishes under his time is a member of the Charlie Miller Society. So while you have a 90 hour time limit, there is a select group of Americans who have made it to PBT who achieve a Charlie Miller time. And we should mention that PBP only runs every four years, correct? Nowadays. Correct. Correct. Yep. Every four years. So in, in 2019, I went, um, I didn't necessarily have the most ideal preparation. I, I, I broke my hand five weeks before and was off the bike for two weeks, but you know, at least I was well rested. My, my goal is to get Charlie Miller uh, and it worked out great. I did 54, 5440 or something like that. Yeah, we, we smoked it. There's a group of us who just ride, ride hard. You know, we're, we're riding 22 miles an hour, 23 miles an hour most of the time uh, as a group, you know, taking poles, really efficient at the checkpoints. Uh, you have to be fast off the bike. That's really the key to all of these events is being fast off the bike. There are remarkably strong people that come out to these events who will dilly dally at the checkpoints. And then, you know, you see 10 minutes slip away. So for example, I, I did the first, I think I did the first 480K in 440K in 27 hours and I was off the bike for 50 minutes. And that's where, that's where that time comes. You just, you, you are efficient at the checkpoints. So that other disappointment, the other award I mentioned is something called the R60. And I mentioned that there are these uh, incremental Breves, 200, 300, 400, 600. Each of these have a time limit. The R60 is a small group of people who have achieved uh, the completion of it within 60% of the time limit. So for example, you would do a 600K in under 24 hours. Um, and it's, it's a very small group. No one, there's probably 12 people on it and 13 people who know about it. Uh, but that's, <laughs> that, that's kind of the spirit of the sport is the names are listed alphabetically. The person who finished in 89 hours and 90 minutes did the same exact course that I did in 54 hours. And I, I love that. Uh, it's, it has this, um, I think it's harder to be on a bike for 90 hours than, than to do it for 54. So I, kudos. So if somebody, yeah, if somebody hears this podcast and then says, man, that, that really does sound like a cool gateway to ultra distance stuff. It's well organized. It's got some history. sounds really cool. I want to get into it. How do they find events like this? It is the perfect way to get into long distance. You, you will very good chance finding extremely experienced people in these events, people who've done, you know, five PBPs and somehow are still smashing it and they're incremental. And I, I, that incremental, I cannot emphasize the importance of that enough that if you can do 200 K, you can do 300. If you finish a 300, you can do four. And they just really build 
on each other from uh, an endurance standpoint, physiologically and, and mentally. Uh, but the, for the U.S. anyway, uh, RUSA, R-U-S-A, randomnearingsusa.org, uh, is the place to go. Um, and you can find where your local randomnearing group is. And um, there are routes that are available for you to do. And um, they're called permanents. You can do them anytime. Or you can find a series that you can join. It's been a bit of a challenge during, during COVID times. So we've had sort of virtual brevet series. Yeah, go to RUSA find a local series, go to the 200. And when, when you see that the start is at 4 a.m. for the 300 or for the 400, and you don't want to go, then you're not cut out for ultra. You have to be willing to get out of bed and <laughs> really get to the early. start at 4 a.m. Before we move on, I mean, you, you brought up the whole history. The, the one thing that I think is worth mentioning is we think of this now as this unique discipline that's a little separate from typical bike racing. If you went back 100 years in time and talked about randoneering, they would just go, well, that's just bike racing. That's much more of what it was back then. So I'm going to butcher some of my history here. But, you know, for example, the first Tour de France was, I think, four stages, and each stage was four or 500 miles. They yeah, were massive. Yeah. Yes, for sure. So it was basically just four randoneering events in a row. Yeah, and it, there's been a little – there was sort of this historic split, like, in the 50s – these events, they would be done in mass. So you would all ride in a big group. And, and that's the, the ODAC style where you would agree upon an average speed and the whole group would achieve that average speed. And, and breves have kind of split off to achieve those same distances, but it's, you, you choose your minimum or maximum speed based on the time limit and it's more individual. But yes, uh, certainly I think that's, that is the history of it. Of note here, when we talked before, uh, or last week, Matt, you mentioned something that I thought was really interesting about this um, this event, this the history of this event, and the different ways that different nationalities sort of deal with it. Basically, I'm getting at the fact that at PBP, when you did it, all the majority of the people on sort of his, his not historic, but traditionally <laughs> maybe lugged steel frames with heavier, uh, you know, racks and things like that were the Americans and all the Europeans were riding their LaPierre, carbon LaPierre's with, you know, like a bikepacking bag on the back of it or something that's a little more aero. Is that true? 100, 100%. And I I found it, I I loved it. it. It cracked me up so much because the the U.S. rando scene is a lot. There's a lot of oldie timey, you know, your your Renee Hurst crank and your drilled out uh, brake levers and your bar, you know, bar cons. And I, I don't care what bike you're riding. I, I just love that part of it. But when you when I when I lined up in Paris, everyone was on a carbon deep dish wheel bike with 25 c tires, and you know, I was on a, a titanium seven uh, with 32s for a little more cushion for my recently repaired hand. Um, but yeah, that don't, don't let the style of bike you see at a uh, local brevet scare you away from the beauty of the sport. Um, yeah. I love that diversity of it, but certainly that you would, you could probably tell the nationality of the rider based on, on the bike, especially if it was oldie timey, it was an American or a Japanese and they had a mm. beautiful, a beautiful hand built, hand painted lug bike and with a huge trunk bag on the back that had a spare crank because they probably need it. 
uh, <laughs> and you know, 12 speeds, none of which are even close to a, a ratio of worth going up a hill. Right. Uh, right. But, right. Yeah. But they do the same course. They do the same course. 650B wheels, 48C tires. Yeah, go for it. Nick Legan, the road brand manager for Shimano, is an accomplished ultra-distance cyclist, having completed Tour Divide and the 12-hour time trial world championships, among other races. Here he is talking about 12-hour time trial events and how they require a very different approach. So it's, it's put on by RAM, the organization that does Race Across America, and it's the it's the 6, 12, and 24-hour World Time Trial Championships. So it's not a UCI event. This is, is entirely different. Um, the 24-hour serves as a qualifier for RAM. So if you hit a certain benchmark or certain distance, I should say, in those 24 hours, you're qualified for RAM. Um, I don't have a lot of interest in RAM. I have a lot of respect for RAM. Um, but I, yeah, got this 12-hour idea in my head, and I've always loved road time trials. I grew up as a road cyclist first, and... Um, jumped into that one again, not really knowing what I was doing. Um, but I had been doing all these gravel events where 12 hours suddenly seemed short. Sure. And I was like, well, why not give that a go? Um, and then I was able to go back a second time and, and get on the podium, which was really, really satisfying. It is different. Cycling likes to, to slice up the sport in a lot of different ways and, and, and look at the differences instead of the similarities. This is what we do as human sure. beings. I saw it as this incredible opportunity to take a lot of those those problems out of the equation and focus on what can I do. It, it's a simpler problem to try to solve for versus tour divide. Um, and so I was really focused on my nutrition and, and getting into a, an aggressive or for me aggressive time trial position. And it's you can, can you can um, it's a little more scientific. You can you yeah. can solve for a lot or you control a lot more. It's like the hour record times twelve. Or the amateur hour <laughs> yes. times one. Exactly. Yeah. So let's d- dig into a little, yeah. a few of those elements, the nutrition side of things and the equipment side of things. Yeah. Uh, let's start first with nutrition. What, what did that involve? What does that look like on a 12-hour attempt for you? Well, for me, the first time I did it, the, the worst laps I had are when I had solid foods, mm. actually. Um, and again, this is just for me. I'm not advocating sure. anyone go liquid diet. Uh, I've always had good success with gels and things like that. So the second time around, I don't think I had a piece of solid food from the time I started until I finished. Wow. So it was all high-calorie drinks, um, gels, things like that. And it, I, I was able to push, and I never had a hunger flat. I never had the bonk, whatever you want to call it. What was the time dif- or dif- distance difference between those two attempts for you? I think it was 258 miles the second time and i think i was in the 230s the first time okay so that's uh, it's an appreciable difference mm-hmm. um and part of that was my position and maybe that the equipment i was using but a lot of that was also i didn't have those couple laps where i felt pretty lousy i felt much better uh and the heat was similar so my, my strategy for heat um adaptation and um, just yeah cooling uh techniques Mm -hmm. was similar for both attempts. Um, But my nutrition honestly probably made the biggest difference that and I just was able to spend a little bit more time before the event in that position, that very specific Mm -hmm. position. So yeah, let's talk about the position and the equipment used on this bike. What, how, how, how do you balance arrow with comfort? Because I would imagine that's the equation in some ways. Well, it's one of those funny things. What's 
interesting about that event is you can look at 6, 12, and 24, and you can look at the people who are fast in each of those distances, and it kind of tells the story right there, that the shorter the distance, the more aggressive you can be with your position, for instance, the less you need to take on board from a nutritional standpoint. Um, in the six hour, you don't have to deal with lights. We start in the dark in the 12 hour, and you're required to have a, a flashing light. And obviously, for the 24 hour, they're out there a lot longer, so they're dealing with a wider temperature range as well. Um, so I was riding a full TT bike the whole time. I ran a power meter the whole time. I ran a disc wheel the whole time, wow. a skin okay. suit. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, yep. pretty uh, – and you see people just as much on – uh, recumbents, that's what, another interesting element to this particular event. People on recumbents, you see people on like steel fixed gear bikes. Wow. So it's a, it's a really broad um, mm-hmm. range of, of people, abilities, and bikes. Um, I was maybe at the slightly speedier end of things, in particular the second time I did it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was even playing with things like do I start with a full tail time trial helmet, long tail, and then switch to a road arrow helmet? Um, and what are the What's the time cost of that? So I did some modeling using some online applications, things like that. Um, you know, even things like using sunglasses that have um, photochromic lenses mm-hmm. so that I didn't have to change glasses throughout the, the attempt or the ride. Do you have support during this, somebody to hand you stuff as yeah. you go, go past? Yeah, so at that one, you're on an 18-mile lap for most of the time. And then in the last hour and a half of each of those distances, you switch to a shorter, I think it's a four-mile lap. And so each lap, you can receive support. Then the question becomes, should I stop or should I take that support? Because it might be faster just to blow through and, and not <laughs> – sure. I mean, sure. stoppage is, is yeah, stoppage. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's really, really – I think that's what you learn with a lot of these longer events is that you don't have to be fast if you can just not stop. Mm-hmm. And that sounds – obvious but when you start modeling it out off the bike fast when you're off the bike if you're off the bike or or just don't be off the bike yeah i mean i think if i went back into the six hour i would just start with everything i was going to use for the entire ride and recognize that i was going to go into caloric debt i was going to get dehydrated by the end of it and not stop no can you could you get a muset bag hand up on sure, a six you, hour? Sure, then you still have to deal with sure. that, right? Yeah. So, so if I can go through that that transition area or that support area at 22 miles an hour without stopping, quote unquote, versus slowing to even 12 or 15, well, I have to accelerate back out of that. And if the 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 guy or the gal, man or the woman who I'm racing against decides not to do that, I've just put myself at a severe disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And I I know that sounds tiny. Um, but those differences, they get magnified. Every time you have to accelerate out of a corner, every time, you, you know, you're doing it for, for a long time, uh, those things add up. And this is with a funny, the interesting thing with just ultra in general is that small decisions can have big ramifications because you're out in the world for so long, right? So arrow matters uh, as much as we want to. <laughs> yeah. It's not always sexy to talk about, but if, you're, if your jersey fits well, for instance, even if you're going 12 miles an hour at, at a gravel race, it matters. It's still, you know, because our wind speed. Especially over the hours Absolutely. that you're going to be out there. Yeah. yeah, and so it's, I think a lot of people think about ultra as an excuse to, no, I shouldn't say an excuse, but they just, they approach the problem differently. And and honestly, I think that a lot of the same solutions that work for World Tour actually are very applicable to people wherever they are in their um in their efforts, especially if we're talking about ultra, because you're just out there so long. So, for instance, in a 12-hour time trial, or out there in Tour Divide, are you able to 
just sort of tune out, shut off, and be on autopilot? Sometimes, but I think if you're really pushing, in the 12-hour, I would say no. I never shut off. I I mean, I, I'm the kind of person I like. I'm doing the mental math all the time, and I'm looking at – I'm hitting the lap button to get a sense of am I on pace, am I behind pace, and I have a grid taped to my handlebar to refer to, to to say this is what this looks like, 18 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour, et cetera. Um, and am I eating enough? Am I pushing up the hill as hard as I should be? Am I looking at my power to, to pace, et cetera? So it's a lot of mental work in addition to physical. On Tour Divide, you can absolutely tune out a little bit more, especially when you're someone like me. I'm not trying to break the record. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do want to, you mentioned enjoy. I do want Take to- Taking en- that scenery and abs- enjoy, yeah. Oh yeah, I want the selfie. I want the, you know, <laughs> I want the photo with, with the people I'm riding with. So it's, it is a little more experiential as opposed to race. Um, but you still need to stay switched on. You need to keep your head in the game, and that's to take care of yourself, to take care of your bike, to to do the preventative maintenance, whether that's, uh, not to get too nitty-gritty here, but like whether that's taking advantage of a restroom's, uh, a restaurant's bathroom to clean yourself, mm-hmm. you know, for your saddle interface, mm-hmm. or um, lubing your chain, you know, uh, staying on top of your tire pressure, things like that. Before it gets out of hand, especially when it comes to Absolutely. self-care. Like yeah. you don't want to let that that weird sensation under your butt go too long before you take care of it or, or, that, or whatever. Or that numbness in your pinky that's right. spreading to your ring finger. It's right. like, well, I need to address that by yeah, moving my hands. Your whole arm. Yeah, yeah, I need to move on my handlebars a little bit more. I need to try, try some things. Take a glove off, put a glove on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, those things, they add up. I mean, taking the time in, on Tour Divide, we hit car washes, the self, the, the do-it-yourself do car wash, and just blast that mud off, mm-hmm. get it clean again. Um, so, yeah, that preventative maintenance, it goes a long way, and it, it seems like you're wasting time, but these are things that they pay off in, in, in the long run. And, again, this is all about the long run. Right. So, We touched upon RAM. Maybe we should go a little bit deeper into RAM. That That's sort of the – when you say ultra cycling nowadays, I think most people think of RAM, these cross-state records, some of these 12- and 24-hour TTs. This to me seems like the almost the antithesis of randonneuring. Do you want to dive into that just a little bit more? I think they're complementary. You see a lot of the, you know, the best ultra racers coming out to PBP and, and you know, shooting for – uh, course records, obviously unofficial because that's not how PVP rolls or randonneuring rolls. Um, and they're, I would say they're complementary. And I used Breves as a way to prepare for ultra. But you know, ultra generally is you know, competitive distance cycling, and, and RAM I would say is the the, um, the best example of that. Uh, and I think you you listed them quite quite nicely for the U.S. Anyway, the UMCA Ultramarathon Cycling Association um, uh, manages some of these 12 and 24 hour races, um, essentially non-drafting 10 and 12 12 and 24 hour time trials, and cross state records, and uh, race across the West, race across Oregon, and these these are a m- much different discipline in terms of logistic and uh, preparation. So you, you have a full support staff and it's required. Uh, for RAM, you have to have a follow car with you at all times. You have to have a, an RV with your rest of your support staff. You can change bikes. You can change helmets. You can, you know, you can come up with any version of it that you want with the goal of just being as fast as you can. 
for me, the, the beauty in that sport are like the 12 and 24 hour races. That's sort of my 12 hours, sort of my sweet spot. Um, and I've really enjoyed doing 12 hour races and, um, the cross state records are, are just a lonely, lonely death. It's just you and your support car trying to get from one end of the state to another as fast as you can and, and hoping the weather conditions stay with you. On the terminology here, just so we're clear on things, what is, what makes a race ultra? Does it have to be a certain distance? Does it have to be a certain uh, number across a number of days? Is a 200 mile bike race ultra or is it sort of just a loose terminology? I, I would not be the, the end all be all on this definition. I, I like to think of it as a state of mind. Um, but I, yeah, 200-ish miles seems about reason, you know, reasonable. I'd say if you're spending 12 hours on a bike, that's a fairly ultra-lengthy day, uh, ultra-event. So then, yeah, some of the most popular gravel races that have started up would fall into this category. Exactly. And, and, and even though uh, uh, what used to be called Dirty Kanza, you know, is a 200-mile gravel race, I, I actually think the ultra version of that is the DKXL. I think the 350-mile right. race, that, that to me feels a little more ultra. Um, and, and part of that is because there are fewer, a lot fewer people who are willing to subject themselves to that, which means a lot less drafting, a lot less tactic in terms of uh, preservation and sitting on wheels that feels a little more ultras to me. But I, like I said, I think it's a bit of a state of mind and you get to decide what's ultra. That being said, let's talk about sort of the third big discipline here that we haven't touched upon bike packing. And I know that, you know, this takes on multi-day events. This could be off-road. It can be on-road. Tell us a little bit more about bike packing. This is my favorite discipline. I think it's the most beautiful of the disciplines and that it has tends to be in these more remote places. And I'm sure some of the listeners have heard of uh, some of the well-established uh, bike packing races, the um, Tour Divide, uh, the Trans Am, the Trans uh, Across the U.S. race. And, and these tend to be fully self-supported. And you load your bike up and you sleep when you're tired and you ride when you're not. And the first person to the finish line wins. And generally you follow, you follow an established route, though there are some races where you get to choose the route. You just have to meet certain checkpoint requirements. So you have there's a navigation component to it. Uh, there's a lot of these are uh, mixed terrain, a lot of off-road. And I, I've only been able to do one bike packing event. And I think it, I think it was phenomenal. I did the transatlantic way uh, in Ireland in 2018. And the experience of that was the synthesis of all of these events that I did. There are people who were going to ride for 48 hours straight and shoot for the wind and sleep in, you know, in a culvert with a space blanket. And meanwhile, Brad Smith, who was my partner in the team's event, we stayed at an, uh, an inn every night for, and took showers and we still managed to win the team event. Um, so you get to decide how you engage in the, that discipline. There was a couple on their honeymoon who did it. They took 14 days. The winner took four and a half. Uh, so there's that self-sufficiency component, how you decide to pack your bike, what, do you, what you decide to pack. Uh, it's, it's the most beautiful discipline of, of the three that we've talked about. And and to be clear on these multi, these events that are so long that they take multiple days, no matter who you are, uh, the clock starts 
and stops when you finish. It's not paused when you're sleeping. Is that correct? No. Yeah. The clock is continuous. So um, for the, for many of these races, you are required to have a spot tracker, uh, spot satellite tracker. And these, these trackers, they, uh, they start tracking you the moment the whistle blows and they'll track you as you're riding. They'll track you when you're sleeping and they'll track you when you cross the finish line. And um, there's this uh, small cult of fanatics called dot watchers yes. who will, who will follow your, you know, your spot track. Uh, and sometimes they'll come meet you out on the road and bring you a slice of pizza, which is kind of a miracle in, in, in the process. <laughs> Yeah, for anybody uh, who wants to see uh, see this in action, they could check out the GB Duro film that was produced about Lachlan Morton. There were a lot of dot watchers that followed him. He was crushing it. They came out in the middle of the night. They played music for him. They rode with him. <laughs> um, some people rode with him for a while, went back home, caught up with him again, probably in their car because he was moving so fast, and so so on and so forth. So th- it is a phenomenon within the bikepacking world. Yeah, it, the strategies are really interesting in, in this event too. And you you can consider how you manage sleep. And the importance of that is that there are these guys who will not sleep, but the person who's sleeping three or four hours a night ends up only being about, you know, 10, 15 miles behind them at, at any given point. You just need sleep to function. And that's something as I've developed as a, you know, endurance athlete over the years that I'm faster when I get a good two to three hours of sleep in me than if I just try to suffer through it. Maybe you guys are following Ted King right now on his his race through Arkansas, and that that poor dude has got puffy eye in a big way, and he just needs to <laughs> get a little slopping in and put his head down for 20 minutes, man. Just go to sleep. 20 minutes. Nick Legan is a tech and gear guru. He's the former tech editor of Vela News Magazine, as well as a professional mechanic for World Tour teams. Here he is again talking about racing the Tour Divide and the gear that's needed. So let's talk about one particular event to start, and that's Tour Divide. Okay. You've done it too many times. You've done it too many times. (laughs) Your wife would say you've done it way too many times. Um, You've started it several times. You've finished it Once. once now. But tell me about all of the things you learned through that process of attempting and attempting and attempting again before you actually finish, specifically when it comes to gear choice, equipment choice. I mean, that's a big, broad topic, but it hopefully is. you can drill down to the, the, the key elements here. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the, the, if you just want some big takeaways instead of gear specifics, it, the big takeaways for me are that comfort is speed. That if you aren't comfortable on your bike for many, 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 too many hours, then you won't be successful. And that reliability often trumps um, lightweight or other aspects of performance. That you need something that's durable. Your body needs to be durable. Your bike needs to be durable. The body-bike interface needs to be durable. The tires, etc., need to be durable. I should explain for those who have never heard of Tour Divide before. It is a race from Canada to Mexico, essentially. That's the yeah. really simple version of it. And it's all, all off-road, so we're talking basically a mountain bike 
race here? More or less, yeah. So it's 2,700 miles from the beautiful place of Banff uh, in Alberta, Canada, uh, down to the Mexican border at Antelope Wells, New Mexico. It's 2,700 miles. I think it's 200,000 feet of climbing. It's a lot of climbing, Mm -hmm. let's say that. And it's predominantly off-road. It's I would argue it was called the Great Divide Mountain Bike Route when it was created, um, but that's because I think when it was created over 20 years ago, that was the best tool for the job. It's it's in some ways a glorified gravel event. Right. There isn't much single track, um, but a 29er tire is still the default tire size. So, uh, and, and it is um, it's really hard. So it's self-supported. There's no uh, support vehicles. There's you do it on your own, and if you're really a purist about it, the rules state that, for instance, if you or and I lined up together, we can't even share resources or draft off of one mm-hmm. another. So it's very much an individual effort, even if there is some camaraderie uh, involved. Right. Maybe a silly question, but what are the absolute essentials? for a, an event like this in terms of equipment? Determination. <laughs> um, Good answer. In, in terms of gear, yeah. uh, I think you need some way to keep yourself warm um, and moving during uh, daylight and into evening hours. Some people do very little sleep. Um, and then, I, you know, some way to keep yourself somewhat safe when it comes to sleeping, when you're going to take those those brief respites from, from the trail. So, uh, you, you know, some people beyond that, I think everything is debated, whether you need battery powered lights or dynamo powered lights or if you need water filtration or you don't need water filtration. A or lot of that, stove or no stove do most people racing it don't bother with a stove. They just find food it's, somewhere. Yep, and you eat everything ready-made. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a pretty cool experience. Um, the record is under 14 days. My completion was just under 25 days, and, and I was not at the back of the pack. So it's, it's, a, it's a broad spectrum of ability and results. Um, but it, it creates a whole lot of questions that you need to answer. Um, in the lead up to and the preparation of, um, but then also just on a day to day, hour to hour, almost minute to minute sometimes, should I stop and put on that jacket if it's looking like rain or mm-hmm. on and on? It's, it's, it's this, this continual problem solving kind of undertaking. One of the things we talked to Matt about was the, this idea of to sleep or not to sleep. Yeah. I, I think that that's probably a very personal thing. And also it goes along with your goals. If you're really trying to go fast, you're probably going to start getting into sleep de- deprivation and be okay with that mm-hmm. going in. But if you're sort of trying to balance things and enjoy it a little bit more, yeah. but not go so fast, you have to find what works for you. Maybe talk about that process a little bit and, and how you figured out if you could get away with some naps during the day and then you needed it, you know, six hours at night or whatever it was, yeah. whatever the case was. Well, shout out to Matt first. We go way back and I'm excited to hear what he has to say on the matter uh, when I listen to this podcast later. Um, but you're absolutely right that sleep is a very personal thing. Um, some people who are really pushing at the front um, are doing some incredible things that I don't think anyone uh, in the right mind would suggest anyone else do. You have to take responsibility for, for those decisions and own them and try to, again, not create, um, essentially not turn yourself into a liability for other people. Um, I found that napping could be really, really helpful if I was just absolutely on the struggle bus, that I could just lay down and have 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And it was, in some cases, amazing, the result of that. Um, But yeah, some people are, and it it also depends on the length of the event. Tour Divide is long enough that I, I know that I need sleep. 
I can't go. Sure. Even if I even if I had a great result and I went sub 20 days, I know that I need sleep during some of those days on a pretty regular basis. If your event is, let's say, uh, you know, 30 to 40 to 50 hours, I think you can start playing that game a little bit more. So when I've done some gravel events um, that were 30 plus hours, I didn't sleep at all. And it just, so it depends on the event and what, and, and your your comfort level, um, because things get weird when you don't give the mind sleep. So the, your ability to make good decisions, your ability to be a human being in a world that's uh, still ongoing in a way, so traffic, et cetera, um, things can get a little weird and sideways if you're not careful. Yes, Matt shared some stories that of, and I've heard others talk about the hallucinations they deal with, <laughs> yeah, strange they, things that get, come out of the woods can or get kooky. at them. Yeah, yeah. 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 So not I don't this is not meant to pick on you in any way but it's you, okay. you 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 attempted this yeah tour divide several times before you actually completed it. Yeah. I wonder if that was a was physical or equipment or both mm-hmm. or neither that took you out of the race the first few times. Well, quickly I'll say that it was never equipment that took me out. Okay. Um, I always was was really lucky and fortunate to work with some companies that uh, and still do that provide really uh, incredible equipment and gear. Um, no, when I, I mean, I, yeah, full disclosure, I, I think I attempted it three times before I was able to complete it on my fourth attempt. Um, the first time, to be honest, I had no business being there. Mm. I, I just jumped in. I was too excited. I jumped in and I didn't do the work. I, I should have gone and tried to tour sections of the route, for instance, or I should have tried... A little recon. I had done what uh, the formerly called, now called Unbound. I had done Dirty Cans at 200 a few times and suddenly thought that it was a good idea to jump up from 200 miles to 2,700 miles. Um, <laughs> a I had bit some, of a stretch. I had some people kind of nudging me in that direction, um, whether it was really my best interest or not. Um, but yeah, I, I had some overuse injuries and tendonitis that knocked me out, and then... Um, it was kind of injury that knocked me out of two of those. And then I'll admit that my third attempt, I just lost it. I, I went northbound, which uh, mm. Matthew Lee, who's the, the protagonist in the Ride the Divide documentary, he, was, he joked with me that, um, you know, good luck on the big lonely. Because most people go southbound. They start so you in see Canada. some people, yeah. You, feel, you see a lot fewer people going northbound. Um, and I was, I was on a – I was fit. I was ready. I had a great bike. I had you know, no gear problems. And I spent six and a half days essentially alone and just kind of lost it. And I got to the town of Salida and I was like, why on earth would I ever leave this amazing place (laughs) with all these beautiful conversational people? And I I just was like, I I have no desire to be back out there, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was just this mental thing where I just, I lost the plot a little bit, you know? And I'm not saying I like hallucinated. It was nothing like that. It was just a motivation thing where I just, I wasn't where I wanted to be at all. And so I stopped and it was, man, that... As someone, I'm not saying I'm in this super successful person, but I'm I'm pretty accustomed to setting a goal and accomplishing it. And so Tour Divide represents something pretty pivotal in my life, uh, which is grappling with failure is tough mentally. You know, I knew that I was fit enough to complete it. And I know that my 25-day finish is not the fastest I can do. So I know I can go back and, you know, in a good year, go faster. Um, but th- that's powerful. There are a lot of lessons in there. Yeah. So, I mean, you brought up something I really wanted to discuss, which is the whole sleep side of these type of events. I actually did a little research beforehand to see what if there even was any research on these 
uh, ultra type events, found several studies on specifically on RAM. And to give you an example, one of the ones I downloaded title is challenges in maintaining emotion regulation in a sleep <laughs> and energy deprived state induced by the 4,800 kilometer ultra endurance bicycle race. That's a great title. That is a perfect <laughs> Beautiful title. title. <laughs> yes. And if you dive into it, they basically say, yeah, they lose all emotional control. They go through every single emotion. Uh, sleep deprivation is a major issue. I know that at Ram, there used to be this thing about not getting off your bike. I mean, this was an eight to 10 day event and they would not get off their bike. Now there's a requirement. Basically what the study says is that they would benefit from taking longer breaks and getting a little more sleep because they're there are issues with efficiency. There's issues with the latency because of what the event's doing to them. So if they just get off the bike and try to get an hour of sleep, it's not all that beneficial. Yeah, I, I've tried similar things of just plowing through. And I, I, I tried to do a 1,000K straight through. And I, I just I found myself on the coast of Oregon weaving in the middle of the road at 3 a.m. And I found myself into a coastal park, flipped over a, a picnic table and laid down on wet ground and finally got some well, that sleep. Well, was, that was a happy ending. It could have ended much worse. Yeah, the stories of these, of some of the hallucinations that these guys have. So one of the most famous Ram guys is this guy, Yuri Robic, uh, who, who unfortunately passed. And um, Yuri had these dreams of freedom fighters chasing after him with Klasnikovs or however you say it. And his crew just let him believe that. So that he would keep riding. And like, oh yeah, you're definitely being chased by five horsemen right now. Keep, keep rolling, buddy. Don't stop. <laughs> I spoke to a guy who did Ram. I love this story. He was somewhere around Pennsylvania. So he was getting towards the, towards the other end of the whole event and said he was on this fairly straight, flat highway and he said this rabbit started hopping alongside him. And he said for about 20 minutes, he had this really good conversation with the rabbit <laughs> where the rabbit was talking with him. He was talking with the rabbit. And he said, but that's not the strange part. So the strange part was it wasn't until two weeks after the event that I finally realized I had hallucinated that. Oh, <laughs> it's like for weeks, I was like, of course, it's normal to have a rabbit hop alongside you and talk with the rabbit. <laughs> There's a um, the guy who founded D2R2, the famous dirt uh, dirt road event in Western Mass. Uh, this guy Sandy Whittlesley, and he holds the record for Boston and Montreal Boston, which is the PDP equivalent of yep. the U.S. when it was run, 1200K. I think he did it in 44 hours and change, some some insane number. He had you know old cat eye halogen light with two C batteries, trying to peer his way through a rainy night and. Vermont roads. And he told me how the guardrail turned into a giant snake. And he said, if it wasn't a snake, he probably would have continued heading towards it. So it, you know, his hallucination saved his life wow. in that context. <laughs> this makes me want to ask you, Matt, tell us some strategies so that you don't allow yourself to get to this point, because this really does sound dangerous, potentially life-threatening. What have you learned over the years to stave off the urge to keep going? I would say there's a few approaches. And so I'll just give you an idea on the, the mental strategy and then maybe something about the sleep strategy. The mental strategy, I, I've always 
thought about breaking things up incrementally. So I, I've given you these examples of 100K, 200K, 400, 300 example. So 100K with stops, a lot of hills, gives, it takes four hours. Anybody can ride four hours. You get to the next control, you hit a reset button. That reset button is mental. You get full bottles, you get some fresh snacks, maybe a baguette, and you're starting a brand new ride. And the only thing you need to do for the next four hours is get from that checkpoint to the next checkpoint. And each time you get to a checkpoint, it is a full reset. And if you can trick your brain into believing that, then, then that's half the battle. Uh, Trevor, you mentioned the sort of emotional highs and lows and this whole spectrum. And, and that's, it. that's part of the beauty of, of ultra cycling and how you, how you respond to those. There isn't, it's not possible to ride 12 hours without having some emotional component. There's going to be a moment where it's terrible. And it's how you, how you address that moment to get to the other side of it that makes, that I think really brings the beauty to that sport. And for me, I've been able to compartmentalize it and say, um, I'm suffering, but I'm going to get to this checkpoint because that's only 45 minutes away from now if I stay at the speed. And when I get to that checkpoint, it's a new ride. And I don't have to worry about those ghosts from 20 minutes ago. So that, that little compartmentalization is the key for me. And I even break it up even smaller. If I'm on a long, a long, miserable, steep climb, then the next telephone pole is my goal. And the one after that. And, and I might just be basic enough that those simple little things are enough distraction that I don't think about the clock or I don't think about the fact that I've been up since 2 a.m. or anything like that. So I compartmentalize. That's probably the first big thing. That's called chunking in the psychological realm. And that is a strategy for uh, that anybody could use really with, with, with any length of event, whether it's just a climb and it's really hurting and it's, it's only an hour in length, you can still break it up into small chunks like that. Same with the hour record on the track. You want to break that up into maybe it's eight minute segments or 10 minute segments and think of those as discrete pieces. And once you finish that, you reset and take on the next challenge. Yeah. And there's a, there are other little logistic things you can do. You can physically break your route up on your, on your uh, navigation device. You know, I, for transatlantic way, I, I set what were optimistic goals for days. And um, I had each day broken up into two Garmin files and I would, I would look at distance remaining and, you know, it was always fairly palatable. Oh, I can ride 118 miles. That's, I can do that. You know, you get to that, that end of that file and you start a new one and it's just less daunting. These don't, don't get, don't beat yourself up with a number, just make it palatable and you can cheat yourself. You can, you know, cheat your psyche by making it into these palatable chunks. There's all these little strategies. One, one thing I used to do for nutrition, which we can get into is I would set a, a countdown timer on a watch. And every time it would go off, I set it for like 50 minutes, five zero. And every 50 minutes it would go off and I would eat. And it's just, oh, there's my, there's my dinner bell. Uh, and it was just something I didn't have to think about. Just, just another little incremental component. Imagine, you could speak more to this, but imagine another thing. I mean, when we talk, or when I'm coaching an athlete and we're talking about a two-hour race, we want to do everything possible to make sure they don't bonk. If you bonk in that race, you're, you're done. 
when you're doing an event that's 12 hours or longer, bonking is pretty much an inevitability, probably a, a few times in some of these longer events. It's, it's actually learning how to push through it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, I, that's me emphasizing the, the, the utility of these breves building on each other. Is, that's a perfect opportunity to make those mistakes is you, you can, you learn through your own, own errors in these. And, um, you, you can, you can build up your skill set by making these, these mistakes. Um, so I, I think my physiology is, is changing as I've done this for, um, this is 13 years now, I guess. Uh, yeah, 13 years of long distance stuff that I, I feel like I need to, maybe it's because I'm getting older too, but I'm, I'm eating a lot less than I used to. And I can ride into the front end of a bonk and know that, and know that I can rescue it. Now, when you think about the kind of output I'm doing versus the kind of output someone's doing for two hours, it's scaled down quite a bit. You know, we're, we're averaging, I think PBT was, I think I averaged like 230 watts for, you know, 40, 44 hours of riding or something like that. I'm a hundred, uh, what am I? 145 pounds or so. Uh, so it's not like Herculean by any means. It's just a slow burn all day long. And you can feed that slow burn probably a little differently than you would do a, a two hour race athlete. So I, I wanted to touch on the sleep part of it. Um, and you know, through, through my years of doing this, uh, and I, I think we could probably pull data together to demonstrate this, that you are not faster if you just stay awake the whole time. And unless you're super jacked up on caffeine or who knows what, it's not sustainable. And I have found myself way faster if I just get down for a little bit of sleep. So for the strategy of, of these events, uh, you, you can deal with sleep a few different ways. And, and one thing I've, I've, I've learned to do is um, uh, add in caffeine gum to, to my palate. Um, a lot of caffeinated drinks don't really sit well with my stomach and caffeinated foods don't do well, but these, the stupid gum, it gives you something to do. You're kind of chewing and you're awake and it's minty. And that little bit of caffeine <laughs> seems to, seems to really help a little bit. So, you know, PVP, I, you know, I rode 28 hours straight. Um, and there was a lot of kind of adrenaline in that and excitement in that. And, uh, but when I, when I got the sleepies at, at dusk, just as the sun, uh, at dawn, as the sun was coming up, um, just had a couple, couple chews of caffeine gum and, uh, I, I can tolerate caffeine pretty well usually. Uh, and that, that was a good trick for me, but you know, when I got to that, that checkpoint, um, and I'd been on the bike for 28 hours, I, I made a decision to stop. I had remarkably good legs that, that weekend. I was with a, a guy, an Australian guy, super strong, who finished, he was the sixth finisher um, at PDP. And I, I knew if I had stuck with him, I would have finished with him. Um, but I made a decision to stop. And I'm, I don't regret that decision at all because I, I got in the back of our rented minivan with my wife and we fell asleep for four hours and I got back on my bike and I never got sleepy the rest of the event, you know, turned out the last 400 K found a great group of guys to ride with finished within my goal time, you know, all with the, the, the issues I had leading up to it with the, with my hand injury and some back stuff that I'd been dealing with. You just don't, 
don't question it, just lay down and go to sleep. And that's, that's something I'm, I've adjusted to and adopted through my years of doing this. I would assume that over the years too, and, and it's probably a personal choice, but you've identified the right length of nap for you. Some people might do well with 15 minutes. Some people might need an hour. There's probably a point where it's maybe given the length of the event and all of that, maybe too much. You don't want to fall asleep for too long a period of time or else it'll, it'll uh, um, be somewhat detrimental. Is that all true? I usually go into these events with a goal. And I'm sure you guys have these things too. You have your your public goal. I want to finish X, Y, and it's usually a little mo- modest. And then you have this uh, slightly obnoxious goal that you kind of keep to yourself. That's that's how I go into these events. I always have the obnoxious goal in my head and will just adjust my pace and my sleep and my stops to meet that goal. So if if I lay down and I know that I've been averaging the right speed, I've achieved this distance and I'll just say, okay, you get two hours, then I'll sleep two hours. If I get to that point and I'm a little behind, they'll say, okay, you get an hour. So I, I haven't done the experimentation in the way that, that I could answer that accurately other than I say, I set a goal and I, I achieve it and I'll break my rest and my rides up into the, the framework so that I can achieve it. Okay, so now a listener out there says to himself, man, this sounds really great. I got to do one of these things, but I just ride two hours, you know, on Saturdays. Maybe I'll get a really long ride of six hours every other weekend. Let's talk about the training of how to prepare for these ultra distance events. Is it something that you can do with a minimal amount of time? Is it something only for veterans that have been riding a long time and they have a lot of miles to to work from in their legs? What, what would you say to that? I, I think there's probably a spectrum, uh, and it's probably pretty personal, and there's probably some physiological aspects to this. But um, you you look at uh, an analogy for, for randoneering is watching uh, – a big city marathon, watch the Boston marathon. And there's a number of runners who are finishing in two hours and four minutes. And there's a number of runners who are running the same exact distance in eight and a half hours after they've pulled the banners down and the crowds are gone. You couldn't tell that person at the end that they're not cut out for a long distance, right? They, they, cause they achieved it. Um, so I, I think that you build, you build physiologically each, each weekend and you build that mental fortitude each time you do that. And I, you know, 10% is a good way to start. If you can do a uh, hundred miles, you can do 110. And, and then you can maybe say, I'm going to tack another 20 onto it and, and build that up. And each time you add that physiological component to it, you add a mental component to it. And then at some point it doesn't even matter. You're just like, ah, all right. I, I just rode 180 miles today. I can do 240, no biggie. And, and once you've achieved that, the distance is meaningless. So you can just keep rolling. I got to add in here that you you have a PhD in immunology. You work in gene editing. You've been through a PhD program, which I got to assume is a bit of a time-consuming endeavor, all while taking on all this ultra-distance stuff. So how did you find the time to do it? Do you, does it 
does it entail 20 hours of training a week or can you can you get prepare appropriately with 10 you can and um you know i you you plan out a, a season and these brevets are these these 200 300 400 600 those increments are a month apart sometimes and it's how you how you use the time in between uh to prepare for them so one one big realization for me was doing some interval work to make sure I had top end. Uh, the the more top end you have access to, the easier those hills are. You can follow. Uh, you know, there's usually a lot of knuckleheads at the start of these things who think they can do it at 25 miles an hour, and you can let them if you can sit on their wheels. And then you've wasted zero energy. You need a little bit of top end, and then when they blow up, you're you're fresh as a daisy. Um, so. I definitely have done more interval work than you would think you would need for sit, being steady. It, it, these are the, the goal, the, the goal of these is steady. You get to a hill, you maintain the same effort you did on the flat. In fact, you're probably going easier than you think you need to on these hills, but it's essentially, you, you guys all know, know the analogy of this like book of matches, right? And essentially, when you do a breve, you've lit the entire thing on fire and you're just trying to let it burn as slowly as possible. You're not like, there's no top end burns on these things. But the more top end you have, you can get a little closer to that red line the whole time without really having a negative impact on you. So I, I definitely do uh, pedaling dynamic work. I, I definitely do low RPM intervals. I definitely do high RPM intervals. I do uh, sweet spot intervals. Uh, and those all very much contribute to my overall speed on these events. They make it accessible. Um, and, you know, when, when you're in these events, you know that you have that in your quiver. When someone goes up the road, you know you can get to it without being, having a negative impact. So these events build on each other. Having put in the effort for these, the short, intense, uh, some of the interval training, they complement it. So I think the addition of those two things uh, really help you get there. Let's hear from Jose Bermudez, the only rider to complete RAM, the Tour Divide, and the Trans Am, about what it takes to train for one of these events. I train with power. My athletes train with power. We look at roughly the same metrics, you know, I'm interested in raising people's threshold at power threshold. I'm looking at their cumulative training load, their acute training load. You know, I want the ramp rates to go up. So all those metrics are kind of the same. But the work that we do with them in, in ultra cycling training is, is very different. How so? What, give me some specifics there. Yeah. Well, so let, let me go say a little bit more about what's the same. So the, the, the major difference between ultra cycling events, you know, apart from maybe some excitement at the beginning, is that on balance, you're operating at a much lower level percentage of your functional threshold power. But of course, if you can make improvements in your functional threshold power, then that, that you know, operating at 60% of it or whatever is going to get you going faster and, and more efficiently. Right. The major difference between training and racing with power and training and racing in regular road races or mountain bike races is that I think it's unwise to race with a power meter. Or let me put that a slightly different way. I think it's unwise to race to a power meter. Mm. I've seen a lot of people 
DNF because they've tried to keep to you know pre-assigned power numbers that they've either assigned themselves or a, a coach who maybe is thinking about the races as a slightly different thing is assigned to them. And what happens is that people blow up either physically or, or psychologically. And by psychological blow up, I mean just give up because they can't meet their you know meet meet the meet the numbers that they've assigned to themselves or that have been assigned to them mm-hmm. and part of what I try and train people to do is to use the power meter in training so that they have a better understanding of their physiological capabilities and their physiological capacities and limitations and how hard they can push themselves if you could give some specifics here on maybe just volume is there a minimum that somebody needs uh per week or month that gets them to the level that they can tackle their first brevet at 200k 300k 400k do you think in those terms or is it or or not i i think in terms of what you want to do so if you came to me and said i want to do the tour divide next summer and you said you know i've got no experience but you know i'm a you know, category three road racer and, and uh, you know, an expert mountain biker, or we used to call an expert mountain biker, I would probably sit down and try and work out whether you've realistically got the capacity to get, you know, to, to be competitive in that race if you want to be competitive. But suppose that you were, then I would work backwards from, from the start of the Tour Divide, which is in, in June, and think about, you know, you're going to want three weeks or so to taper, three or four weeks to taper before that. So somewhere in the sort of six week before the start of the race, you'd want to do your last kind of big thing. So maybe a three day, a three day bikepacking race or a three day, you know, race pace kind of bike tour, if you're disciplined enough to do that solely on your own. And then working back from that in standard kind of training cycles, three weeks on, one week off, I'd want to build up to that, making that that three-day event kind of work for you, and you know, working on all the things that you would work on as a as a road racer, as a cross-country mountain biker, but just making sure that there's an increase in in long rides. Not that all your rides are long. You know, it used to be the case that people trained for things like race across America just by you know riding their bike for hundreds of miles every week smart people don't do that anymore it's not it's not efficient it's not a good use of time and it doesn't actually make you any faster so yeah matt matt was uh, very clear to point out that he still does some work at high intensities he does some specific interval work which helps him with his top end even though you might think that's really not what he's going to want to tap into when he's doing a 450-mile bike race. Yeah, I mean, so I don't know. I'm interested to hear what what Matt was doing. Um, But yeah, my training training routine is all interval-based. And it's mainly, it's not, you know, mainly sweet spot intervals. It's mainly threshold intervals. And there's some real intensity in there. You know, I think it's good for people to 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 do VO2 max intervals. And 
partly that's for physiological reasons. I mean, I think it helps people raise their, it helps their bodily adaptation. It helps them raise their threshold. But also, there's a lot of suffering in these races. And it's good to practice that. Mm. Suffering comes in lots of different varieties, and it's good to practice lots of different, lots of different types of it. Yeah, excellent. I mean, for for me, the 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 physiological side of the longer the race, the less the importance of the physiological piece. And what I mean by that is, you know, if it's a if it's a twenty five mile time trial, I'm pretty sure that you could predict the you could predict the results pretty accurately by doing a you know by doing a power test at the beginning mm-hmm. and if it's a road race you know say it's a 50 60 if it's a criterium you could also predict it pretty well road race slightly less so but still you can get a you can get a good read from what people's power curve looks like to how they're going to do in events you know when it gets past uh, 500 miles none of that stuff really works well mm-hmm and what makes for success is a is a common it's a it's a complex spectrum of things certainly you've got to be in really good shape but you've also got to have a mental strength that not many people have of being able to maintain a kind of intensity of activity for for literally weeks at a time and being able to deal with all the physiological stuff that's kind of inevitable you know, like saddle sores and bronchitis and you know people get all that sort of stuff i've had all that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. and you need to be efficient on your bike you know there's no point in hammering for you know hammering for six hours at 20 miles an hour and then taking an hour off your bike you're much better off taking the 10 minutes off your bike and taking a more controlled controlled pace and then you've got to be really good at working out when when to dial back and when to go hard and how you can catch up on someone who's 200 miles ahead of you mm. how you can close those sorts of gaps it's e- you know it's it's easier to think about how to close a gap when you can see that person when they turn a corner in front of you it's harder to think about relative pacing and strategy and how to do it when it's a 200 mile gap if you could construct the perfect ultra distance cyclist in a lab, what would that f- specimen look like, both physically and mentally? Uh, well, the, the first thing is they'd probably be about 10 pounds overweight because I think it's really important to have a good cushion when you go into one of these long events. If you're, if you're going to go hard. Mm-hmm. So some would be might not look like the they wouldn't look like the model of your road you know classic road cyclist or even your sort of classic cross country mountain bike. Pretty high VO two max would be a pretty high lactate threshold would be good. A power curve that is you know stronger at the at the steady state threshold portion of it. That's where I'd like to see people excel. Um, typically, you know, people who are better at this have a little bit older and used to dealing with long projects and setbacks. So someone who know, but someone who knows, knows how to suffer. 
So I think a pretty good predictor is 24-hour mountain bike racing. That's kind of hard. <laughs> For some people, it's probably next to impossible. But in the grand context of what we're talking about... I think it's, it's good training. Yeah, yeah. There's not, that many, there's not that many of them left. There's not that many of them left. Fortunately, there's one, or there was at least until last year, one not very far from where you used to live in Austin and near where I live in, in College Station. But there, there are a few. And what I like about them is that it's high intensity, but it's long enough so that you really have to think about pacing and nutrition. And you just have to think about that kind of complicated piece of how you close a, how you close a big gap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I found <clears throat> another study again on RAM. I don't know why they keep picking on RAM, but this is most of the ones that I found that looked at the training style of riders. So they found this wasn't an individual. They, they found a team. So there's a four person team where they trade off. Uh, so each one does about 1,200 kilometers and looked at how they trained. And this particular team got second, so they seems like they were they were pretty strong. Their training style was pyramidal. And most of the studies actually talking about should they have been more polarized versus pyramidal. But basically, so if you use the three-zone model, they were about 63% of their time was in zone one. 28% of their time was in zone two, so a fair amount of sweet spot work, and about 9% was in zone three, so they were doing interval work. I do agree with this overall. If you take all their training time, they were pyramidal. They were basically like a, a pretty typical cyclist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, for me, I found that the more I've worked on some more of those little top-end things for that for a shorter amount of time, the more fun the events got because you, you, you have that set of tools. Uh, and once you get the confidence for the distance, now it's just honing your craft. And, uh, and for me, you know, I, I don't need to achieve anything else. I've done great stuff in this, in these disciplines. They're super fun to me. And, and now that I am you know, getting a little older and, um, adding these, these other components to it just makes it fun. Just being able to rip up something, even though, you know, you shouldn't, and knowing you have that tool on your chest, it's, it just adds, adds more fun to it. Matt, I know that you are a bike commuter as well. You ride to and from work in in Boston, or you did when before <laughs> before the pandemic. I wonder if the, if you have uh, found any uh, advantages to doing that less and doing longer rides. It's been an interesting experiment, not commuting. And I have to confess that my commutes was where I listened to fast talk. So I am, a, I'm a couple <laughs> months behind. Oops. Yeah, it was, it was the perfect way to, to commute because you guys were always emphasizing the importance of rest. So I would, I would always make sure I was soft pedaling on these commutes. But the, the anecdotal evidence I have is that in the absence of my commutes, I've gotten stronger because I'm not riding seven days a week. Um, you know, I'm not doing, even though my, you know, we all, you know, I think full-time commuters kind of judge their, their miles that they commute as these junk miles. And that's, that's garbage, man. You, it's still time on the bike and not having that. I, I've been getting almost seven hours of sleep a night, which is a big step up for me. And uh, I'm not riding seven days a week. I'm doing more focused things, more actual training. Um, 
But, you know, as soon as we open back up, I'm going to go back to commuting seven days a week. So I am not getting in a car to go to work. So I'll, I'll pay that price. How, how long is your commute? Uh, it's nine, nine miles each way. It's like 45 minutes. So Matt, one, one other question here about the nutrition that I think uh, I'd like you to speak to. And that is, if you get to a gas station in the middle of nowhere and they don't have your favorite cliff bar that you're looking for, but you're really craving uh, Funyuns, should you go with the Funyuns? Yeah, I, I have definitely learned that you do not deny your craving. It's your your body knows better than you do. Now, I, I'm going to throw in a caveat here that A, I have a pretty iron stomach and B, I'm a longtime vegetarian. So that that hot dog that you see rolling on the thing and the Seven Eleven with the <laughs> no bandaid on it. No one should ever touch that thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it never crosses my mind as being a palatable item. So so my I would say my risk level is a little bit lower in general. But um, I I have a I have a weak spot for the cheapest sour cream and onion chips and the one that has MSG. Bring it on! I, it's just what I what I crave on these rides. Yes. Um, so I, I, I've definitely learned to go with what uh, I'm hungry for, but I try to eat as much real food as possible. So uh, in, in addition to being my, my wife's mechanic during her racing, she, in her previous career, was a soigneur for pro cycling teams, and she is now my personal soigneur for these events. So I get um, you know, handmade sandwiches in the middle of these events and I get to eat real food. Uh, and that is, that is a remarkable benefit because it's not just one bar after the other. Um, and that, that reminds me that there's a lot of sugar in your life when you do these ultra events and there's not really any way around it. Um, I found the things that work for me. So I'm a full scratch convert. I, I can drink scratch without ever really having it negatively affect my stomach. It always hydrates me well. Uh, I don't care if it's hot. I don't care if it's cold. It always does the same thing for me. doesn't matter what the flavor. It's palatable. It's fine. Um, I've tried other things. This is the one that's always worked the best. In terms of bars, I try to mix it up. And there's some bars that I ate exclusively that I can't even look at now. But <laughs> the things that have the, the fewest ingredients are the things that seem to continue to work the best for me. Um, and, and the, the, especially their ingredients you can pronounce, I find to be a good, a good guide. Yeah. But real, real food is a big component to it. And that, that's quite helpful to me. And the other thing is your, your you get palate fatigue and this is, this is a real thing is that at some point, and this circles back to Trevor's comment about bonking. At some point, you do not want to chew anything. You don't want to open a wrapper. You don't want to look at any food. You're just tired of eating. Um, and, and that's, that's going to be a big mental piece. And how you, how you get over that is kind of where craving comes in. Um, so that, that pickle that's in saran wrap at the store, <laughs> just eat it. It'll be fine. Yeah. I remember, you know, I don't have very much experience with ultra distance stuff, but I have done what used to be DK a couple times. And I remember the last time I did it, getting to that final aid station, my dad was there. Um, a couple other people that I knew were there and they had a whole, you know, there, there was a spread of different things, but the bag of chips and the, 
uh, root beer or something. The two things that I knew were going to make me burp for the last 125 <laughs> miles or whatever it was, or not 125, last 50 miles, that's exactly what I needed at that moment. So I just went with it and I suffered the consequences. But hey, for for 10 minutes or five minutes at that aid station, it was uh, it was heaven. So that was perfect. Yeah. I, uh, you know, another little pro tip is pack a toothbrush. Mm. You know, if you're just, you get your teeth become, and this is a very non-palatable description, but your teeth feel hairy after a while yeah, just from gross. so much damn, damn sugar and, and just being able to brush your teeth at, at some point is, is a really nice that for the bike packing stuff. I, I love brushing my teeth like partway through the day. Um, and it just, it, it also helps with that palate fatigue it kind of gives you a that's another uh, way to chunk it you, you you give yourself a clean slate so i'm trying to find it and i unfortunately can't but one of these studies about ram did talk about the caloric deficit that the, the average cyclist sees over the course of the event and it was actually quite amazing considering as you said you're, you're trying to make sure you eat as much as possible you get tired of eating but I'd like to say the, the caloric deficit over the the course of the event is like fourteen thousand calories yeah, there's no way you're going to you're going to be able to fill the void. And and you know how you how you de- how your body deals with that is probably going to adapt over time. Um I I this one thing that used to happen to me is a day or two after a long distance event, I would gain or retain 5 6 7 pounds. And it's as if my body was in in some sort of preservation mode. And it was saying, all right, we're going to just, we're going to hold on to fluids. And around the second or third day after an event, I had to be within about five feet of a bathroom because I just, <laughs> I, I could not going stop. There. Uh, your body just finally gets rid of all that fluid. Um, and I, I, you know, as I've gotten maybe more experienced or older, uh, the amount of things I take on board has re- reduced, maybe I'm more efficient. Um, and now I don't, I don't have that, that same, that same experience with that. You can never replace during the event, what you lose and, and you'll get sick. It's just, your body can't, um, can't process it. Uh, you, you guys have probably all eaten too much on a ride. You, you did a, uh, a coffee shop ride with your friends and that sandwich looked too good. And you get back on your bike and there's a bowling ball in your gut and you're supposed to pedal your bike after that. You're supposed to you're supposed to be able to digest it and pedal a bike. So that's where simplicity of food kind of comes in. Is you know don't eat too much, but keep it keep what you do eat fairly simple. Uh, let your body do its natural processes, but recognize that you're asking it to do a lot. You're asking it to pedal for the twelfth hour on the same day and digest um, an ungodly uh, ingredient list of food. Doing an ultra takes more than just training. Here's Jose Bermudez talking about the other critical factors such as nutrition, sleep, and gear. I think it's good to have a lot of miles in the legs. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of people... So the Tour Divide is an interesting example. There's a film about the Tour Divide. A lot of people have seen it. They think, oh, I'll have a go at that. And they don't really understand the realities of racing your bike for... A long period of time. It's 2,700 miles. I mean, the record is 14 days. I did it in 2016 and I got a top 10 finish. I think I finished it in 18 days. 
anything less than 25 is is reasonably brisk but a lot of people you know they've never ridden their bike for more than 100 miles and to finish in 18 days i had to ride for 155 miles a day for 18 days sleeping by the side of the road and carrying stuff and you know that's a different kind of level of commitment and intensity and you can't do it unless you're really comfortable on your bike unless you know your body unless you know your equipment unless you can fix your bike unless you've figured out your nutrition plan and that's not something that you know that's not starter level type stuff the the nutrition piece is probably the biggest piece i i think in ultra cycling yeah go into that if you wouldn't mind uh, i i completely hear what you're saying we've heard it from matt we've heard it from nick before um how does one figure out what works best for them? Practice. <laughs> yeah, simple, right? <laughs> it's really simple. <laughs> you do a lot of races, you do a lot of long training rides, and you work in different conditions. Because this is a very personal thing, too. Some it's people a, might have to a, go right. completely whole foods all the time because they cannot tolerate gels. Some people might do well the, in the very opposite direction of that. Well, there and there are a couple of different things to think about. I mean, one is one is conditions, and I and I think a lot of people that I coach and that I've raced with have real difficulty finding you know finding stuff palatable when it gets hot. And by hot, I mean you know if you do something like the race across America, which I've done, you, you're crossing the the desert near Borrego Springs, and it was 120 degrees when I went through it in 2015 going through that kind of temperature nonstop for you know 48 hours which is what it takes to get to get across from Oceanside to to Congress Arizona it's pretty it's pretty hard to feel yourself and what a lot of people do is they find something that works real well for them for a century ride and think that that's going to work for a thousand miles and you'd be surprised at how that stuff that tastes really good you know, after four hours tastes really completely unpalatable after, after 48. Yeah. I hear what you're saying there too. Yeah. I can only imagine. Um, so, so what, what I encourage people to do is to, you know, when they go out for, you know, a training ride, maybe not a super long training ride, 10, 12 hours, something like that, to use that opportunity to, to experiment with different types of stuff and see what works when it's cold, see what works when it's, when it's hot. The cold raises another different set of issues. I mean, I, I've raced in, in Alaska in winter, and then you have problems with, uh, you know, <laughs> you think your chocolate bar tastes pretty good, but it, it's frozen solid. You, you know, the cheese that tastes really good at room temperature is frozen solid. It's a block in your, in your bag. So you've got to defrost things in your armpit. I mean, there's a lot of things to think about here. What tastes best after being defrosted in one's armpit? I prefer the stuff that doesn't have to be defrosted. <laughs> okay. <in your> armpit. <laughs> and what would that be? Call, call me old-fashioned in that respect. So I, I like nuts. Okay. Yep. I like nuts. I like uh, chocolate-coated nuts, you know, like M&Ms and stuff like that. Mm. Um, I personally do better with savory things. Than, than sweet things so pretzels pretzel like trail mix all those stuff all that stuff doesn't doesn't freeze right right um and there are various types of freeze-dried meals but of course you know freeze-dried meal you've got to 
boil water and you've got to boil water, you've got to carry fuel and you, you know, you've got to melt snow and do all that kind of stuff. Again, you know, this is very much an individual thing. And this is part of, you know, part of training is being able intentionally to, to push your limits, to see what you can, you know, to see, to see what works best for you. But I find that most people do better with slightly longer sleep breaks. And, and by slightly longer, what do you mean by that? Three to four hours. Three to four hours. Okay. So if, you know, and that's for something like, for something like the tour divide, if you want to be, you know, if you want to be really competitive and really efficient, you should probably be looking to sleep a little bit more than that. Maybe, maybe in the four to five hour range. If you're doing something like race across America, you want to be more in the sort of one to two and a half hour range. Because part of what's, you know, one of the variables here is whether you've got other stuff doing stuff, other people doing stuff for you. So when you do the race across America, you, you do nothing except ride your bike. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got people there who will change your bike, who will lift you off your bike and put you back on your bike. They'll feed you, you know, they'll do everything. That actually makes it much harder because, you know, there's nothing to do except ride your bike. But it also means that you can push the envelope on, on sleep because you don't have to think so much. Mm -hmm. And you're, you can shut down a whole lot of, of mental, you know, mental systems and you're just following a white line on the side of the road. It's, it's pretty intense. But if you're doing something where you've got to plan, you've got to find a route, you've got to resupply, you know, you've got to deal with, with open roads without a, without a follow vehicle or you're dealing with trails or, you know, you've got snow and possibility of falling through holes in the ice and stuff like that. You want to, you, the stakes are a little bit higher in some ways and it's best, I think, to err on the margin of safety with sleep. Excellent. Lack of sleep does bad things to you. Yeah, so I've heard. So I've heard. I'm not one for sleep deprivation, um, so I haven't experienced the hallucinations that I've only heard about and have been glad I haven't experienced firsthand. Well, well one problem is that it affects your judgment. Yeah. And... Again, if you've got a support crew, you've got people there whose job it is to basically to call it when you're when you when you're falling asleep on the road. If you're out there on your own, you know, if you do something like the Trans Am, which goes from uh, Astoria in Oregon to Yorktown, Virginia, forty three hundred miles, and it's all on roads, and some of them are pretty busy. You know, if you're if you're in a sleep deprived fog on that, you can, you know, you can die, and people do. Yeah. Every year. In fact, I, I won't train people anymore for that, mm. for that race. I think it's too, I think it's just too dangerous. What other aspects here, Jose, do you think are really key to success or even enjoyment at these ultra distance events? Well, for, for self-supported events, you know, being, being handy with your bike is, is, is really, um, is really important. And I don't just mean being able to change a, a flat. I mean being able to know what stuff to take with you, so that you can fix pretty much anything that pretty much anything that happens. And that leads to another piece, which I think is also really important, which is being able to pack smart. 
because there's a big there's a trade-off of course between speed and and weight but if you go too light particularly if you're unsupported a long way from a long way from from uh, from bike shops or from any kind of civilization you need to you need to be completely self-contained i mean you don't want to be out on your own in the winter in alaska when it's minus 40 degrees and realize that you left a crucial piece of equipment at home but on the other hand you can't ride around with a hundred pound bike either right i mean i know that because i've tried it <laughs> yeah so you've got to be organized you've probably got to make lists you've got to check them twice and three times and 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 know how to use everything that you bring you've got to know how to use everything that you bring and you've got to know how to make things do more than one job right right be efficient and and, and you've got to learn and you've got to learn this in practice absolutely you know you, making a list is not enough looking on the internet and seeing what i took on my last race or what my call took before he died and is just not going to help you you, that stuff needs to be, you know, it needs to be an extension of your personality. Matt, you've you've listened to Fast Talk before. You've mentioned that fact. You know how we like to end our shows with some take-home messages. What would you say is the biggest take-home message about all of this that we've spoken about today, the ultra-distance, randonneuring, bikepacking, ultra-cycling? What are your key elements here? So I would say the the most central part of this is that we enjoy riding our bikes and I love being outside. And now I get to be outside for days at a time and hours at a time. And how I got there is through incremental building uh, over the years, making mistakes, learning from those mistakes. But really I get to be outside pedaling and that's all you have to do is just pedal your bike and pedal it some more. I, I just think there's there's just so so many different ways to experience two wheels and I, I just feel a lot of gratitude that I was able to go from this this metal hip to be able to do these kind of things and you know I, I as sappy as it sounds I really feel like every pedal stroke is a gift I just wasn't a plan and now I get to see how many different places and how many different ways I can pedal so it's uh it's cool to be able to share this I mean I've I've gotten to sit in the follow car and change wheels and, and races. I, I got to be Cadell's mechanic at the, you know, in Colorado for BMC wow. and got to see all sides of it. And now I get to write my own, own stories. And, uh, you know, if I can excite a few more people to, to do something similar, I'd, I'm happy to do that. Trevor, what do you got? Continuing with that, my message is there's a whole lot of different ways of riding your bike. And there is a way for everybody. And that's one of the things I like about this type of event. You, know, you look at this compared to a 45-minute crit, and you are getting about as polar opposite an event as you can get. Reading the statistics about RAM, I mean, even the people who are winning, uh, or even event like PBP, you're riding at your aerobic threshold or below. You're not at that, you know, tongue hanging out race intensity. This is just, uh, it requires very different energy systems. It requires very different type of toughness uh, that could be really appealing to some people who don't find that shorter high intensity event particularly, uh, particularly appealing. And I think here what we've really touched on is the, the challenge is all that balance. It's the balancing energy, balancing sleep, 
keeping yourself going, the whole mental side of, boy, this is starting to get to me. The emotions are going all over the place and I've still got a couple more days to ride. So to, to me, that's quite exciting and sounds quite fun. Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the adventure of all of this is, is what I love about hearing these stories. You know, we didn't really talk about Tour Divide, but something like that is something that, sure, some people race it. Other, people's are, other people are just out there enjoying it, but they're learning a lot about themselves along the way, figuring stuff out about whether it's, you know, their capabilities or just having a good long think about life and the world, uh, it allows for that on these events. So yeah, there's a lot of different entry points, a lot of different ways to get into what we have talked about generally, which is this ultra endurance, ultra distance type stuff. There's the, the stuff like Ram, which is, you know, that seems like it's pretty competitive and very racy. And then you've got randonneuring, which is, you know, if you want to feel like you've traveled back in time a hundred years, that's for you. And if you want adventure, then that's, and you're self-sufficient and you want to challenge yourself in a different way um, and combine backpacking with bike riding, then you've got bike packing races. So I love the fact that it's all ultra, but it's very diverse at the same time. Thanks. I, I appreciate you bringing me on and it's been a, an honor to be able to uh, have a, a schmo who, who keeps it below threshold on your show. <laughs> That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at fasttalklabs.com or record a voice memo on your phone and send it our way. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Matt Roy, Nick Legan, Jose Bermudez, and Coach Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.